In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank in three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be examined before you and the countenances of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. At the end of the ten days, their countenance appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of ten days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all was None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah before they served. Therefore they served before the king. And in all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. If you have growing kids in your family, you're a bit concerned, I bet, these days as to what's going to happen to them. Recently on television, teenagers were interviewed. It's always interesting to have teenagers interviewed because they speak very honestly, very candidly about what's around them. The interviewer asked these teenagers, what do you see as the greatest problem facing teenagers today? Overwhelmingly, they said, peer pressure. Peer pressure. 
I am giving the book of Daniel a title. That is the title for the series that we're going to spend several weeks going through. I'm calling it Loving God in a World that Doesn't. That's the theme of Daniel. How to love God surrounded by a world that doesn't love God. Surrounded by a world where there's lots of peer pressure to do everything else but love the Lord. We find ourselves in the same predicament. However, Daniel's a teenager in chapter 1. He's probably 15 years old. 16 at the oldest. They say somewhere between 13 and 16 years old is Daniel at this point. He is away from home. He is a captive in Babylon. And he has lots of pressures around him. I read this week a little article by Ronald Hutchcraft from Youth for Christ. He said there are seven unique pressures facing young people today. Seven pressures that are unique to this generation that other generations didn't have to face as much. Number one, media bombardment that previous generations have not had. Values are transmitted through movies, through songs, through magazines, and we're bombarded by it. Number two, moral choices are made now at an earlier age than ever before. Proof, one out of every five junior high kids has had sex. They're making choices about drugs in junior high school and even before. Number three, the real possibility of no future. You see, kids are growing up with almost a paranoia. As they look ahead, it seems pretty bleak. What if somebody pushes the wrong button and we all get nuked? That's what kids said they're afraid of. Number four, there's no moral consensus holding society together. Hutchcraft says there's no sense of violating anything because there's nothing in the kids' minds to violate. There's no basic consensus or set of values. Number five, the difference in the structure of the home. He said there are more incomplete families now than ever before. Six, kids have an unprecedented freedom. That is, kids away from home without, supersti- without supervision. They get into trouble. I know this personally from growing up and having a lot of free time, unsupervised free time, I got into trouble. Number seven, and this is interesting, emotional softness. Emotional softness is number seven. That is the inability to cope with pain because things now come easier to kids without delay or discomfort. Sort of instant. They get it whenever they want it, however they want it, a lot quicker than the old days where people had to work a little harder for it. And that breeds the inability to cope with life. And these pressures are getting to kids, aren't they? Because we know, and it's sobering to think, that the second highest cause of death among teenagers is suicide. The pressures are very real. But peer pressure is not just something kids go through. You as an adult go through it. We have a different title for peer pressure as an adult. It's called Keeping Up with the Joneses. We know what that's like. The tendency to conform to somebody else's standards, be it a standard of living, standard of dress, standard of look, standard of whatever, philosophy, a number of things. The pressure to conform. How do we overcome? We live in a world hostile to God. We live in a world that thinks what we're doing now is absolutely stupid and outdated, subjective at best. 
How do we stay true to God in a world that doesn't know Him? How do we stay in the world but not of the world? Daniel, this whole book answers this question, and chapter 1 is a great introduction to it. Verses 1 through 7 is the captivity of Jerusalem. And I want you to look, first of all, in verse 1, and we'll stop after verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar is the new political star on the horizon. He's going to be the world ruler. The year is 605 B.C. A strategic battle has just been fought. If you're a history buff, you're familiar with it. The battle at Karshemish, where the Egyptians and the Babylonians have it out. It's between those two strategic rivers in the ancient Near East, the Orontes and the Euphrates. Nebuchadnezzar won it hands down. The Egyptian army was almost completely annihilated. They went back into Egypt. Then that leaves the Babylonians to just sort of pick over the rest of the world. Everybody else is easy after you defeat Egypt. And so Judah is next in line. The Babylonians, for three successive sieges, come against Jerusalem, putting to death the people that live in it, taking others captive, and on the third siege, they destroy the city and burn it with fire. One of the kids that was taken captive and displaced 650 miles from home was little old Daniel. As we said, a 15-year-old teenager. Imagine the emotional stress and shock on his system. Fifteen years old. His face is just a face on a milk carton back in Judah. His mom misses him terribly if she's still alive. What happened to Daniel? God, how could you allow this to happen? Terribly distressing. But there's something here in the midst of the captivity that's important that you realize. God takes the credit and the blame for part of it. Look in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. Skip down and look at verse 9. The name God appears again. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Skip down to verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God is judging Judah for her idolatry, for her oppression of the poor, and God takes the credit for delivering the king of Judah into the hands of the oppressor. Yet, behind the scenes, God is raising up a statesman named Daniel, who's just a kid now, but he will play a very influential role in the history of Israel that will last through the entire 70 years of captivity. He'll become really the prime minister of this country. I like this because if you look at history apart from God, you look at oppressors like Nebuchadnezzar who flexes his strong political arms. I am the king. I am great. You look at it from a divine perspective, he's just a pawn on the chessboard. And God just sort of goes, flicks him from one direction to the other. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And like the courses of water, he moves it wherever he wishes. This is a divine setup. God is putting Daniel into position to influence Nebuchadnezzar, later on King Cyrus, and be an instrument to help deliver the children of Israel back into Judah with great strength. 
oftentimes in trouble, we are prone to say, it's the devil, right? That's the first thing Christians often say. It's the devil. It's an attack of the devil. Maybe, but could God be in it? Oh, no. God of love wouldn't allow that. Really? How about a God of love giving Israel into the hand of an oppressor? The Lord gave Jehoiakim along with the articles. Actually, as I look at this scene, both the devil, I believe, and God are at work. The devil wants Israel to fall. So the devil entices Israel and its leaders to get into idolatry, to get into oppression, to disobey God's commandments so that they get taken captive. And he goes, all right, Nebuchadnezzar came, it worked. But on the other hand, is God using Daniel, using the situation to strengthen the lives of Israel? Both can be happening. So before you say, it's all the devil, ask, what could God be saying in it? Remember Joseph, sold by his brothers into Egypt. He becomes prime minister. At the end of his life, his dad is now dead. The brothers gather together in front of Joseph. And they say, man, now that dad's dead, Joseph is going to be so angry, we're in hot water, guys. They stand before Joseph. Much to their amazement, Joseph tells his brothers, as for you... You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save many people alive as it is this day. Yep, you had evil intentions, but God is sovereign and He works all things together for good. So I'm not mad at you guys. God was working behind the scenes. When a sculptor wants to take a piece of wood and make it beautiful, he takes a hammer and chisel to it. A log that otherwise might be thrown into the fire and burned if the sculptor puts his chisel and hammer to it, can be made into a masterpiece to set on the mantel shelf. What makes the difference between a piece of firewood and a masterpiece? The master and the pain of the chisel. Sometimes we scream and we yell, God, how come? But our perspective is so limited, God has a plan. What position are you in this morning? Do you have a job that's boring? I see nods right now. You hate that job, it's a hard job. Or perhaps you'll listen to this message in a hospital room. You say, this is all the devil, it's all an attack. Maybe, but could God be saying something to you? Could God be orchestrating the events? Could it be a divine setup? I'll never forget how absolutely discouraged I was when we were on our Snow Heights location. We had signed a lease, a five-year lease. We were three years into it. The owner of the building came into the parking lot one Sunday morning and saw all the cars that were there. And in seeing all the cars, he saw dollar signs attached to those cars. He thought, if the church is doing this good, they can afford to pay me more rent, more lease. So he called me up and he said, hey, you know, I'd like to renegotiate the lease that you have with me so that you guys can stay in long term. I said, I appreciate that, but we're not interested. We've already signed a lease with you, and I like the payments, and we have two more years on it. Oh, you don't understand, he said. 
I'm going to break the lease if you don't renegotiate a lease because you've already broken the lease in putting those two fire escapes in the front of the church, which you didn't have my permission to put in. And the lease says, if you do that, I can break it. So I'll break it. And you're out. I knew what he was doing. I knew he was trying to just soak the church, soak the people for more money. I said, well, that's not going to happen. He goes, I'll take you to court. I said, so be it. It was a very difficult time. It was a crossroads time because at the same time, I had been invited to pastor a small church in one of the beach cities in California. (laughs) I had just gone out the previous Sunday to speak and to look at surfboards. (laughs) I knew which one I'd pick. The one with three fins, yellow and white, it was awesome. I had already told my board of directors, I'm on my way out. I feel like God has given me the vision to raise up churches, pass them on, and go out. And yet, now a lawsuit comes along. And I thought, you know, I just can't leave the church with somebody who doesn't know the situation. It's unfair to say, hey, come on, take over. By the way, you're going to be in court next week. So I decided to stay. And we prayed. And later on, I ended up thanking God for that oppressor who sent us looking for other buildings, and it was all a part of God's plan, who wanted us to expand our borders, and we bought this building. Then I'll never forget how discouraged I was when we received phone call after phone call at the church from a group of Satan worshipers threatening to kill me and my son and my wife, to burn down the church. Because we had hosted a spiritual warfare conference here at the church, we wanted to expose darkness and talk about how to fight it. So a group of kids decided to call, and they would call 2, 3 in the morning, leave a message on their answering machine saying, we're going to burn the church down. Skip, you're a dead man. You shouldn't have done this. We're going to kill you, your wife, your son. I come in in the morning, and the secretary said, listen to this message. And, of course, the message would always be couched in this dramatic, we're going to get you. You made a mistake. And I thought, those wimps. They call in the middle of the night. I want to see him face to face. One day I happened to be in on a Monday. I was going upstairs. The secretary said, Skip, it's him. He's calling. He's on the phone right now. What should I do? Put him through. I want to talk to this guy. So he gets on the phone. Skip. I said, knock it off. Talk like a normal kid. (laughs) You made a mistake, Skip. I said, look, I think you're a chicken. He said, what? He said, I think you're a chicken. You act like a big man at 3 in the morning on an answering machine. I want to see you face to face in an hour. I'll meet you at Village Inn in one hour. He said, I don't have a car. (laughs) Figures. All right, ride your skateboard, your bicycle. I don't care, but you got an hour. I'll meet you there. So he met a few of us over at Village Inn. He said, serious stuff, Skip, serious stuff. You know, we don't like what happened. And these guys that I'm trafficking with, you know, they're really serious about this. They're going to burn your building to the ground. I said, have they ever even looked at our building? Have they noticed it's metal? (laughs) They might melt it down, but I seriously doubt they'll burn it down. I brought him over to the church. I made him go to every single secretary one by one and apologize for the crank calls he made. Then we sat in the foyer and he accepted Christ. He prayed to receive Christ. I said, Lord, thank you for that setup. 
You had a plan in that. You wanted to do something with that. Daniel in Babylon. The Lord sold him into the hand of an oppressor. Daniel's 15 years old. In the midst of all of that pressure, he's wondering, what does God have? What is God about? Now, in verse 3 begins a program of training. Three-year graduate school in Babylon. To be trained in literature, history, and the language of the Chaldeans, or Babylon, the ancient Iraqis. What was it like for Daniel to live in Babylon? First of all, for Daniel to be in Babylon was sort of like a kid from the country going to Manhattan for the first time. Just amazed at the buildings. Babylon's walls were 300 feet tall, 60 miles long altogether around, 85 feet wide so that they could have chariot races atop the walls with watchtowers every 65 feet. A moat circled the city. The most famous gate was the Ishtar Gate. Remains of it are still in existence. The Ishtar Gates would open. You would find yourself on a long street, 65 feet wide, of imported limestone. That's what the street was made out of. Imported limestone flanked by red tile sidewalks. The buildings had blue tile with beautifully ornamented yellow tile dragons and lions on them. And Daniel must have walked through the city going, Whoa! I never, this is amazing. I never knew anything like this existed. The court of Nebuchadnezzar was even more impressive. And outside the court of Nebuchadnezzar were the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. They appeared to be like rising mountains of greenery, as one would look at them. But in verse 4, school begins. Get them to learn the literature and the history of the Chaldeans. Why? It was part of the brainwashing to get them to forget and unlearn all that they had learned in their country, to get them familiarized with the religious systems, the pagan deities of Babylon, help them unlearn what they remembered about God and Israel. Very much like what a Christian kid who's been raised in Christian schools all his life feels like when he goes to an ungodly secular university where you have humanistic teachers trying to unlearn everything the kid learned. And some of you know what that's like. You have been amazed as you've sat in college classrooms and watched teachers paid to teach biology, English, and everything else go out of their way to undermine the Bible. And they won't touch the sacred books of other religions, but they'll spend a lot of their time talking about how stupid it is to believe in the Bible. That's what Daniel felt like as a 15-year-old. In verse 5, they fed them very well. The finest caterers in Babylon came to give them the king's food. Of course, we read in verse 8, Daniel wouldn't do it. The idea is to just make them feel so luxurious, so pampered, that they would think, this is great. I mean, what good does it do me to believe in my God? What did my God do for me? I'm in captivity. Look what happens with these people in Babylon. Their God sure take care of them. But the food and the wine were first sacrificed to the deities, the idols. Ishtar, Marduk, Nebo, all of the false gods of Babylon. And then in verse 6 comes sort of the final blow. They take away one of the most personal and private possessions they had, their own names. 
The name Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. They took away that name, gave him the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel, a god of Babylon, protect the king. Hananiah means beloved of the Lord. They gave him the name Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god, Rock. Mishael means who is like unto God. They gave him the name Meshach, which means who is like Aku, the sun goddess. Azariah means the Lord is my help. They gave him the name Abednego, which means servant of the shining one. His name was Nego. There is a parallel. You live in enemy territory, a hostile environment. And Satan would love to change the way you think and the way you live if you're a Christian. He wants to make you so stagnant you won't do anybody any good. You won't share your faith. You won't hold your values. You won't stick to your guns in following the Lord. He wants to change your perspective. He's done a pretty good job in many cases. Using things like the media. Using things like universities. Popularity. Many tactics that he has used to get us to change our value system. But Daniel stuck to his guns. And I guess it's the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. You know, a thermometer is regulated by its surroundings. A thermostat regulates its surroundings. Many people are like thermometers. Whatever's popular, they're up and down. They don't have any backbone. Then there are young men like Daniel who say, I don't care where I am, I don't care who's around me, I'm going to be a thermostat. I'm not going to be regulated by these jokers, by these false gods. I belong to the one true God. So we get now into verse 8 after looking at the captivity of Jerusalem to now the commitment of Daniel. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He thought, okay, learning the language, the history, fine. But I draw the line. I'm not going to eat anything sacrificed to pagan deities. I purpose in my heart not to defile myself with the king's food. Now, he could have said something differently. He could have said, okay, look, I'm in Babylon. I'm 650 miles away from my family. They don't know me here. Oh, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these characters. But they really don't know me, and it doesn't matter. There's so many other people doing this. I might as well go along with them. What's the big deal? Who will see me? God. God will see you, Daniel. Whatever choice you make, God sees it. And Daniel knew that. It wasn't easy for Daniel. It was difficult. If you've ever flown in an airplane and looked down at rivers from the sky... You notice that no two rivers look alike. But there's one thing that all rivers have in common. They're all crooked. They all meander. The reason is obvious. Water seeks its own level. Water seeks the path of least resistance. And if something is firm in its way, it will simply erode its way around it. Rivers are crooked because they look for the easy way. It would be easy for Daniel to go with the flow of the pressure around him. That's the easiest thing. That's the way most people choose to live their lives. But here's an awesome young man, 15 years old, 16 at best, who made a purpose, a commitment, a conviction in his heart 
to not go along with the crowd because he knew that God saw him. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us all things are naked and open to the eyes of the one with whom we must give an account. Moses learned that, do you remember? He thought, all right, I'm going to deliver the children of Israel. He was a young man at that time. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He wanted to get involved. So the scripture says he looked this way and that way, and he killed the Egyptian. Well, there's a problem there. He looked this way and that way, but he didn't look that way. He forgot that God is watching him and got him into trouble. Daniel realized that he lived his life before the Lord. As Proverbs 15 tells us, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. Sum it up, Daniel lived with integrity. He was the same in private as in public. If he was in Jerusalem at the temple or in Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, his life was the same. He didn't have two separate lives. I remember growing up and turning on the television and watching those marine commercials. And you remember the slogan? The Marines, we want a few good men. The motto of the Marine Corps is Sempar Fidelis, always faithful. They're not just looking for anybody, but people who will be faithful. God's looking for a few good men and a few good women. And a few good teenagers who will say, Semper Fidelis, Lord, in every situation, in public or in private, I belong to you. There's a difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what people perceive you to be. Character is what you really are when nobody's looking. Daniel had integrity of character. If you ever want to read a good book and you want to reach back into a little bit of antiquity, read a book called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan from a jail. And it's a book with tremendous insight into human nature. There's one character in the book named Talkative. It's not because he's always buzzed on cappuccino, so he's talking to everybody. Talkative is the kind of guy who can rap the Christian rap and he can rap the worldly rap and it all depends what group he's with. If he's with the world, he'll talk worldly talk. If he's with the Christians, it's praise the Lord, hallelujah, glory to God. He just talks with the crowd that's around him. be very easy for Daniel to do that, but he wouldn't do it. He purposed not to defile himself. Do you defile yourself? The books that you read... Those magazines that you buy, oh, but nobody saw you, God saw you. God was there right behind the counter. You didn't see him, but he was there. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. What about the relationship that you're with? God knows all about it. You're not putting it over on anybody. You might be putting it over on us, but not God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Okay, how did Daniel do this? How was he able to stand as a 15-year-old kid? Because notice, he made the commitment where? In his heart. He purposed in the innermost part of his being, in his heart, not to defile himself with the king's food. The secret to stemming the tide, the first step, is not therapy sessions in a psychologist's office or standing around the campfire singing Kumbaya, throwing the pine cone into the fire. It begins in the heart. Not with the group, but it begins in the heart. What's extraordinary about this is that he did it as a kid. 
15-year-old kid. Parents, parents. This is where it's at. As your kids are growing up, I know the questions that trouble you. How can I keep my kids off drugs? How can I keep them morally pure? Oh, but if you can get them to purpose in their heart to serve the Lord, all those other things are going to be a lot easier to take care of. If we can just get to the kids, that purpose of heart to serve the Lord. It begins early. It begins in the heart. I'm reminded of the story of James Calvert, first missionary to the Fiji Islands. When Fiji was overrun with cannibals, James Calvert is, dry, is on that ship and he's going to the shore and he knows that soon he could be a James Calvert burger for those natives. The captain of the ship knew that and he said, Mr. Calvert, turn back now. You could be killed and all of these men could be killed. You could die. James Calvert said, we died before we came. We know what we're up against. We made the decision a long time before we hopped on your boat. Take us to the shore. We have to purpose in our heart before we come, before we go, before Monday morning begins, before high school, before the job Monday morning. Make a purpose in the heart. So he made it inwardly, but notice at the end of verse 8, he followed through with the commitment outwardly, but very generously. For it says, Therefore, and I like this, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Did you get that? He carried out his commitment with gracefulness. He was lovable about it. He didn't demand. Being separate doesn't mean being obnoxious. He could have said, Listen, you heathen pagan ruler. I belong to God. You don't. It's been said that you never have to advertise a fire. You just let it burn. You never have to advertise your righteousness. If you're righteous, people will pick up on it. And you can be gracious about it. He requested it could have been a firm request, but it was a request nonetheless. Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It was done with great grace. Now from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, we've read it so we won't go all the way through it, but this is now the contest and the comparison between Daniel and his buddies and the rest of these guys, the young men in the king's court. An experiment. We're not going to eat your food. We'll eat this food. You test us and see who's the best at the end. Let's have a battle of the gods here. We'll trust the Lord. We'll eat this food. And at the end of it, God honored them. They were fatter in flesh. They looked a lot better than the rest of the guys with the best food. There was a contest and a comparison. Daniel and his three friends, or should I say the Lord, won out. The Lord said to a priest named Eli years before, Eli, those that honor me, I will honor. Those that honor me, I will honor. And Daniel is honored by God, raised up to an incredible position already in this chapter and even more so in the next chapter because he honored God. First of all, in verse 9, you notice that God put a love for Daniel in the heart of his supervisors. He found favor in their eyes. The Scripture says when a man's ways please the Lord, God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That doesn't mean he won't get persecuted. Just wait a few chapters. Daniel will get persecuted. The devil will turn up the heat because God's favor is on him. But for the time being, God is orchestrating Daniel's life to be a primary witness in the nation of Babylon. 
Then you notice in verse 17, they graduated at the top of their class. I like this. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. Question, is it unspiritual to be smart? Some think so. This should answer it. No way. I remember when I was first going to college, and it was at the beginning of what was called the Jesus Movement in California, and all of my friends thought, it's so stupid for you to go to college. Jesus will be back in, oh, half an hour. (laughs) That's ridiculous. God isn't glorified in knowledge and wisdom. Well, then why do you use Paul? Paul the Apostle was a great man of learning and wisdom, and yet he didn't let it puff him up. God gave him wisdom and understanding and knowledge. He graduated at the top of his class. He had a graduate degree in Babylonian stuff, but he had an undergraduate degree in the Scriptures. That's what kept him. He had a firm foundation before he got into it. That's why I say it again, as I've always said. It's better to have a knowledge of the Scripture without a college degree than to have a college degree without a knowledge of the Scriptures. Daniel had both. And God brought him into favor. Then, and we'll close it off at verse 21, he was used by God. He was used by God. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. What that means is from 605 B.C., where chapter 1, verse 1 begins, all the way to 536, I believe, B.C., Daniel, spanning two generations, influenced Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, all of the Babylonian court, and even the children of Israel in captivity. God used him because he purposed in his heart that he'd serve the Lord. God looks for people like that. Did you know that? God doesn't look for seminary graduates or people with big biceps or good looks. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are devoted to him. God looks at the heart this morning. God looks at your heart this morning and my heart. The prophet Samuel stood at Jesse's house. He was looking for the king, and he looked at Eliab, the tallest, and he said, Oh, this is king material. Look at him. God said, Samuel, this is not the Lord's anointed. For God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God, right now can see your heart. What does he see? A heart with purpose? Does he see a crowded heart? A lustful heart? How about a bitter heart? You're holding on to unforgiveness. Maybe he sees a beautiful heart, a heart with purpose on flame for him. That delights him. Women, all of the makeup, the mascara, The hair dye, the facelifts, the tummy tucks, all that stuff can't hold a candle to the inner beauty of a woman in love with God. That's what the Scripture tells us. Beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. I'm not saying that you should abandon working on yourself, (laughs) making yourself look good, but how do you look spiritually in your heart? There's something attractive about any kind of a woman in love with Jesus. Men, big biceps, handsome features, pale in comparison to a man whose strength is in God. Maybe our commitment could be something like this. 
that a man purposed in his heart. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up. I won't shut up. I won't let up. I won't slow up till I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for Christ. Sounds like he's unswerving, doesn't it? He purposed in his heart. That's what God wants. Don't meander. Don't take the path of least resistance. Purpose in your heart to serve the Lord. People won't like it. Tough toast. God will love it. God will love it. And God will raise you up. Father, we delight to be used by you. We delight to experience your fellowship and to not let the popularity or the pressure of the world conform us. Peer pressure is so real, Lord, so strong. And for so many of us, it's so important that we be accepted by a certain group of people. Lord, I pray that we would be found acceptable in your sight alone. That you'd be our best friend, our closest companion. That in the depth, the quietude of our character and our heart, a purpose and a commitment would be made. And we know that you'll honor it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.